Hey, so we're in Christmas season. Uh, it's uh, one of the most uh, amazing times of the year, uh, specifically for uh, people who are kind of making their way back into church, and you might be uh, here for the first week in a long time. Uh, we really want to emphasize uh, how special this time is in terms of a time of the year. Uh, next week, uh, for our Christmas service on the 17th, uh, we're really uh, wanting to throw this out here to you guys. Statistics say that about 50% of people would attend church if one of their friends invited them. And this means people who are really far from God, but they're close to you. Even if they don't do church, they don't really have a really strong desire for organized religion in any way. Uh, just by you simply inviting them, it means there's a 50% chance they would come. The other 50% would say they would say absolutely not, and they would think you're crazy. But there's a 50% chance that they would uh, come along with you. I'm joking about the first part. Um, so I want you guys to consider some people who might be far from God, but they're, they're close to you. And to think about it and to pray about this week, uh, a friend, a coworker, a relative, someone that you could uh, bring, and we'll just be praying that God would do something for everyone as we gather next Sunday to really focus in on Jesus. All right, let me pray for us before we get into today. Uh, Heavenly Father, um, God, you know just what's on our, our hearts and our minds. Uh, you know the distractions that we carried in. Uh, you know what time we uh, fell asleep and what time we had to wake up this morning, even if we're tired or fatigued. Uh, God, I pray that we would uh, hear from you today and that our hearts would be moved. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Hey, so a few months ago, I spent my Saturday night cleaning up my apartment, and if you know me, it's not because I'm a neat freak, um, it's because I lost my wedding ring. Yes, and I didn't want to show up on Sunday morning, and y'all like, oh, pastor and his wife ain't doing too well. Uh, at dinner time, my son would, uh, when I get home, a lot of times I'll take my wedding ring off because it's pretty heavy, uh, and my son loves to use it as a toy. So he was looking at me with a big smile, and he uttered the magic word, please, and I gave it over to him. Uh, normally, it's not a problem. I'll give him the ring, and uh, I'll be with him while he's playing around with it. And two or three minutes later, uh, he'll put it down somewhere and go back to watching Dinosaur Train. Um, but this time, I was feeling a little confident. I had done this a number of times. I went in the bathroom to shave. I came out about 15 minutes later, thinking that my wife had been with him in the living room, and she was in another room doing something altogether different. So when I get out, I'm like, yo, I have no idea where this wedding ring is. Uh, I bent down, I said, hey, buddy, uh, where's daddy's wedding ring? <laughs> and for about 20 minutes, we walked from room to room in our apartment, and he was just pointing to random places, and I don't... <laughs> I don't know why I believed him. I think he got a good kick out of taking me along the ride. Uh, and then to the amusement of my friends, I went on Facebook. And uh, young people, Facebook is a website that old people use to... It's like Snapchat, but we use it to argue about politics and to, pre to pretend that our life is better than what it really is. So that's what Facebook is. So I went on Facebook and... Um, I was, uh, I posted that I had lost my wedding ring because I gave it to my son, and one of my friends said, dude, I hope you find the ring, but there's a much better question. Why would you give your wedding ring to a two-year-old? It's a way to kick a guy while he's down, but um, it's a great question. Why would you give something of amazing value to someone who can't appreciate the value of it? Why would you give something that uh, represents something amazing and give it to someone who has not the faintest, the faintest clue of what that means. Now, it got me to thinking about Christmas time. And in a lot of ways, the story of Christmas 
is almost like me giving my wedding ring to my two-year-old. Uh, it's God giving us, giving you and me, something amazingly valuable himself in the form of Jesus. But people like you and me, uh, we might be enamored with him at times, but we don't fully appreciate the value of what Jesus represents. It comes in spurts, Sunday mornings for an hour, hour 15, where it's the focus of our attention. But like my son putting the ring down, we tend to put him down, and he tends not to be the center of our life for the rest of the week. If you were to follow us around for the week, you would see that we put Jesus aside somewhere else. Now, what do I mean that Jesus can't be found among us? Uh, I mean that despite what we say, despite the songs we sing, uh, despite the fact if you had your hands raised or if you're a side-hander down here, um, the functional center of our life is not really Jesus. That the focus of our attention is something else. And if someone were to follow you around, regardless of the songs you sing and the music you have queued up on your iPod, they would see that something else is the center of your life. And they'd realize that you kind of get enamored with God for a few moments, and you put him out of sight and out of mind until he's either convenient or necessary again. Now, judgmental people are a great example of this, and I can speak about judgmental people freely because I am a recovering Pharisee. Uh, I spent the first five years of my walk with Christ as one of the most judgmental people this planet has ever known. Um, I have a lot of stories about how judgmental I have been, and for whatever reason, they didn't make it into my notes. I can't, uh, so I'll just keep on going. I won't even say any of them. Uh, but it doesn't matter what songs judgmental people sing on Sunday. Um, they're so critical of other people. They're so rare to show grace to anyone. They're so, so rare to extend the hope of Jesus, the good news of the gospel to anyone, because the functional center of their life is not Jesus. It's not the good news. It's performance improvement. It's behavior. It's you're not doing a good enough job or I'm not doing a good enough job. And what is actually the functional center of their life, regardless of what song they sing, is on how well someone is doing. Now, I spent um, a couple of weeks in Mexico City uh, during Holy Week a number of years ago, and it really clicked on me uh, what the gospel actually was. And um, there was this week during Holy Week where there'd be groups of people who would participate in all of this religious fanfare, and it was this one group of guys who would walk around with no shirt on, and they would have whips where they would be beating themselves in the back, and they were in one long line of procession, and it was, it was absolutely gruesome. Uh, they were trying to imitate uh, the final week of Jesus' life. So Jesus was beaten, and then he was eventually led to carry his cross up the hill, and then eventually... He was crucified, and there were men that, inter that uh, rehearsed and reenacted every stage of Jesus' final week. So they beat themselves, and as people walked, there was this blood all over the street. And men would carry these crosses around barefoot, and it, it was hot in Mexico. It was like the ground was all hot, and they're carrying these crosses around barefoot. And then finally, there was one guy who I guess voted, was voted the most religious, and they let him actually get nailed to a cross. And they had a microphone that was near where the hammer was. And every single time the nail would go through with the hammer, you would just hear him let out another scream of pain. Now, they didn't hang him up there indefinitely. He was on there about five, ten minutes. Um, uh, it was all to represent the lengths to which Jesus Christ had gone to for our salvation. And it finally clicked on me that in all of my judgment, I was really wanting people to pay for what Christ had already paid for. 
I was wanting people to feel really bad about every mistake they had done, and I was wanting people to pay the penalty for their sin. Now, Christian theology teaches something called substitutionary atonement, which means that when Jesus Christ was beaten, when Jesus Christ was forced to carry his cross up the hill, when Jesus Christ was nailed to that cross, every single sin that you have committed and I have committed, if we receive him in faith, was nailed to that cross, past, present, and future. And all of my judgment uh, meant that I was living a life that was not centered around Jesus. It was not centered around what he had come to do. It was not centered around his life. It was not centered around his death. It was not centered around his resurrection. It was centered around me and what my um, morality, what my theology of, mo of morality was. That if I felt that we deserved it, then, um, or if I felt like you'd done a good enough job, or I, I had done a good enough job, then you and God were cool. But no, not that Jesus' free, scandalous, reckless grace poured out on the cross was actually what mattered. I would sing all the songs on Sunday, but Monday through Saturday, and probably Sunday afternoons, the functional center of my life was something that is very, very different. Now, the gospel doesn't mean our sin doesn't matter at all. It means that it matters so much that Jesus submitted to the cross for it. It means that it's not held against us. Now, in all of my judgment of people, even though I've said that I was worshiping God, I was actually worshiping something far different. Something else was far different at the center of my life. Now, this is why the conversation on worship is so important, and let me catch you guys up to speed for those of you who weren't here last week. Uh, worship has much more to do with how you sing a song, or what type of genre a music is, or uh, how you feel in a specific moment. Worship is what is at the center of your life. What is the thing that you give the most value to? Because whatever it is that you find to be ultimately valuable will determine the rest of your life. One of the easiest examples of this is money. If I told you that a person worships money, uh, it wouldn't be that this person would just pick up, um, that money would just be something that they thought about when it was convenient or when it was necessary, but rather, they would orient everything in their life around money. It wouldn't be that, they, that every decision that they made, and maybe those decisions would include them forsaking their family or working too way too many hours, or them neglecting their own personal and emotional health in the pursuit of money. Everything they did wouldn't just be happenstance. It wouldn't just be coincidental. Everything they did was, would flow out of what they actually valued the most. Now, it's interesting. I don't know if you guys knew this. We mentioned this last week, but the word Christmas just basically means Christ Mass or the worship of Christ. And it's been a season that for thousands of years, people have come around and Christians have spent time making sure that Christ was not just the center of the songs that they sung, but the center of the lives that they lived. In this season of Christmas, we're looking at a concept called worship. And worship is um, a, a, a big, huge concept that um, means that uh, what we ultimately find valuable and ultimately adore. And here's our goal in this series. Here's our goal today. Um, I don't want us to think that you're going to arrive at this point where you're going to be a perfect human being. Um, you're never going to struggle again to put Jesus at the center of your life. But our hope and our goal is that we would learn things and tools and ways that you and I could grow more and more to put Christ at the center of our lives. Now, we have people who are from all different stages of faith, and some of you guys are brand new. And to be very clear, it will look very different for you than it might look for someone who's farther along in their journey. And we don't want you to pretend that you're somewhere that you're not. 
Wherever you're at is exactly where we want you to be. Uh, and we just want you to take that next step. And for all of us, we want all of us to take that next step towards more putting Jesus at the center of our lives. And I think that happens when you and I can learn to appreciate the gift that God has given us in his son, Jesus. That much like me giving Jameson my ring and him not understanding what the value was, that you and I would grow more and more to understand what the value is of what God has actually given us. Uh, there's a piece of scripture that broadens the conversation on worship. It comes from Romans 12 and 1. We read it last week. I want to reread it today. It says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Now, what does it look like to present your body as a living sacrifice to God? What it means is that what you give yourself to, the cause to which you live for, is God, God's self. There's a piece of scripture that we're going to focus on today, and it's probably one of the best examples of what it looks like for you to present your body, uh, your entire self to God as a living sacrifice. And it's the story of the first Christian ever, a woman named Mary. Uh, and it explains the process that needs to take place inside of us for you and I to more and more appreciate the gift that God has given to us. Um, it's not something that we can do easily, but it is something that we can learn um, and it's definitely not something that we can do by ourselves. All right, so this is a pretty lengthy portion of Scripture I'm about to read, so stick with me. It starts out in Luke 1, and it starts with Mary being approached by an angel. It says, uh, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, uh, of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary asked the angel, how can this be, since I have not had sexual relations with a man? The angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived the Son in her old age. And this is a sixth month for her who was called childless. For nothing will be impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it be done to me according to your word. Now, how do we learn to appreciate the gift of God's Son to us in such a way that it actually makes Jesus the center of our life? Uh, I think we see this in the story of Mary, a number of things um, that I am just so excited to dig into. Number one, I think that we need to know that everything that God wants to accomplish in your life, everything that God wants to accomplish in your life starts with his uncomfortable grace. There is nothing in your life right now that God wants to do that starts with you. There is not one iota of growth, progress, that will start with you. What do we see happening here in the story of the angel coming to Mary? Mary is not receiving these words with excitement and joy. It says in verse uh, 29 that when she first hears what's going on, she was deeply troubled. 
Later, in verse uh, 34, she's questioning, how can this be? And then finally, in verse 38, she finally uh, submits and accepts what's going to happen to her. The work that God does in our life oftentimes doesn't happen through these amazing high moments, but rather moments where we are deeply disturbed, moments where we are questioning, how is it that we're going to grow? How is it that we're going to move from one level to the next? How is it that we're actually going to have a faith that is um, going to be worth something in a couple of years? And here's what we see first in the story of Mary. Everything starts with God's uncomfortable grace. Now, it sounds a little bit ironic that God's grace would be uncomfortable because grace is a good thing, but oftentimes the best thing that you need is actually a little uh, to be shaken up a little bit in your life. That it's the sign, uh, and oftentimes it's when you're starting to feel um, this discomfort, when you're starting to feel deeply troubled, that in and of itself is a sign that God himself is working actively in your life, that God has already started working in you. I've been speaking to a bunch of people since last week and the conversation on worship, and one of the things that people have said is, man, I just feel so convicted that I just see myself in so many ways that I feel like, man, I'm the one who picks up God for a couple of hours on Sunday, and I put him down somewhere not to be found in my life for the rest of the week, and they're starting to feel this hunger and this conviction, almost as if that's a bad thing, but no, that is a, a great thing. Uh, I've been doing this devotional by Truth's Table. Anybody heard of Truth's Table? Yeah, I need one person has heard of Truth's Table. Yeah, I need to get up on it. It's a pretty fantastic uh, group of sisters, theologians who are breaking down uh, just a variety of topics. Um, and one of the things that they're doing in this devotional, um, one of the women, Michelle Higgins, said uh, something that just stuck with me so profoundly. She says, "Your longing for the presence already near you, uh, already near to you, is itself an experience of Him. Your conviction, your discomfort." of God's, uh, of feeling like you should be further along is in and of itself already an experience of him. God is always previous in the way that we experience him. There is nothing that is good in your life spiritually that you have yourself started. Uh, in his famous work, The Pursuit of God, A.W. Tozer uh, begins his book with a line of reasoning that is so profound. It's a book that I would recommend to anyone, regardless of where you are on your faith journey, uh, A.W. Tozer says it like this, Christian theology teaches that before someone can seek after God, God must have first sought after them. We pursue God because and only because he has first put an urge within us that spurs us to the pursuit. No man can come to me, says Jesus in John 6:44, except the Father that has sent me draws him. And it is by this very prevenient drawing that God takes from us every vestige of credit for the act of coming. The impulse to pursue God originates with God, but the outworking of that impulse is our following hard after him, and all the time we are pursuing him, we are already in his hand. All is of God, for God is always previous. Listen, your life is not a random collection of events that you have manufactured in order to make Jesus the center of your life, but rather it is the previous working of God's spirit and God in your life that sometimes makes us uncomfortable and deeply troubles us, but that deeply, being deeply troubled is in and of itself a sign of God's working in our life. Uh, in one of the most famous portions of Scripture in the, the entire New Testament, Romans uh, chapter 8, it's so theologically rich that if you don't know where to start in terms of understanding uh, God, uh, Romans 8 is a great chapter, and the, the writer, a man named Paul, talks about uh, how God works, and this is what he says, uh, for those that God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, 
so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? Here's what Paul argues, that God knew you before you were ever a thought on your parents' mind. And after God knew you, God set a course of motion. He predestinated you. He set a course of motion for you to be conformed to the image of his son. This is anybody who put, has placed their faith in Christ. And not just that, but God has also justified you and called you and glorified you. And here's what Paul is saying. Nothing good that God is doing in your life originated with you. Oftentimes, it starts with God's uncomfortable grace. And if you're feeling uh, periods or seasons where you're uncomfortable, listen, know that that is God's working in your life. And that's not a bad thing, but to continue to move closer and closer into that discomfort. Now, the second thing uh, that we see in the scripture is that in order for us to learn how to appreciate Jesus, uh, we, off- we need to know that God's grace often works through other people. Uh, it doesn't come just from a-, a mighty revelation, but oftentimes it comes from someone that you're connected to. Uh, as the scripture continues, it says, um, in those days, Mary set out and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judah, where she entered Zechariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped inside her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and your child will be blessed. How could this happen to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For you see, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby uh, leaped for joy inside of me. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill what he has spoken to her. What's going on here? Uh, Mary goes to her cousin's house, and her cousin, Elizabeth, confirms what Mary was told by an angel. And immediately, you see Mary's entire disposition change. Um, In the next verse, um, you see that Mary's entire um, understanding uh, changes. She's no longer uh, discomforted and deeply troubled, or she's no longer questioning. Now she's full of boldness, and she's courageous. And what was it that happened? It was the word of her cousin, this confirmation that came from her cousin that actually pushed her over the ledge. Now, a lot of us would say, listen, if an angel comes to me and I see an angel, I'm not going to need anything else to make me feel like I have heard from the Lord, right? Like if an angel cracks in my, sneaks through my fire escape and gets in my, in my apartment, I don't need anything else. That is good enough for me. And here's what we see in the scripture. God God doesn't just use one thing in order to speak to us, um, that oftentimes God uses people, people in your connection that are close to you to actually refine you and bring you closer to him and help you appreciate more and more the gift that that God has given you. Mary already had this gift promised to her by the angel, and she doesn't start to really appreciate it until until Elizabeth confirms and speaks these words to her. And why is that? It's because you and I, we we can't fully know God and what God wants from us in isolation. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The The Four Loves, talks about being a part of a group of friends, and uh, one of them, Charles, died in in his mid-40s, and later on he wrote, when Charles died, I didn't just lose Charles, I lost a part of Ronald that only Charles brought out. In other words, I don't know Ronald like I used to because Charles is not there to help me know him. What he's saying is that human personality is so rich that one person doesn't bring us all out. You really get to know an individual way better in a group, in a group setting, 
than you do uh, just one-on-one and individuality? Uh, And how much more for Jesus Christ? What that means is your brothers and sisters, people around you, are necessary from their vantage points to help you see parts of God's glory that you yourself would never be able to see on your own. Now, it was an incredible thing for her to see an angel, but just her cousin speaking confirmation was what really helped her get to a place where she was excited about what God was doing in her life. Now, if you've been a Christian for a little bit, um, I bet you that if you walk around to anyone who you would think is mature in their faith, ask them, how is it that you came to be mature? How is it that you came to actually live a life that centers around Jesus? I guarantee you that nobody will say, yeah, all I did was just I locked myself in a room for a couple of years. And I said these prayers, and that was it. I bet you they would point to these pivotal circumstances, these turning point moments where someone, God used a person in their life in order to bring out the fullness of what they wanted, uh, what God wanted to do in them. You know what I hear sometimes as a pastor, and it it makes me sad when I hear it, um, uh, people say, hey, pastor, man, I'm really struggling to find community. And in some circumstances, that's true. And there's things that we need to, to move around in, in order to put people in the circumstances that they can all thrive and find people to walk alongside with. But a lot of times, people don't mean, hey, pastor, I'm struggling to have people speak into my life blind spots. What they really mean is, hey, pastor, uh, I'm looking for someone that I, like to, that I like to hang out with. I'm looking for a friend that we automatically click And that person is going to be a really cool person to go to brunch with. Um, But that's not the point of Christian community. The point of Christian community is not just compatibility, but refining. That God has been putting people in your place that will help you each step along the way. And even if they are not exactly the person that you would have naturally gravitated towards, sometimes God uses those people in your life in powerful, powerful ways in order to bring out the fullness of what God wants to bring out of you. One of my best friends to this day, I hope he's not listening to this podcast um, today, uh, or he won't be listening to it later. Um, When we first met each other in college, he and I had absolutely nothing in common. 1,000% nothing in common. He wore suits every day. People called him Kirk Franklin. Uh, It's true. Am I right? Um, And uh, when my first series of interactions with him was not someone that I felt immediately drawn to, like, oh, man, me and this dude just click, we vibe. No, I I felt like he was a a dude that knew uh, a couple of verses in the Bible. Over the years, our friendship has grown and deepened and deepened, and he is now someone that I can point to that has helped me refine my faith and to bring me back to the gospel over and over and over again in ways that I could have never imagined in the first place. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to reevaluate the people that God is putting right in front of you. Maybe God has put people right in front of you, and you're looking for this massive revelation that's going to come down from an angel, but maybe what God wants to do from, to you and through you and in you is going to come through an ordinary experience with an ordinary person that can just push you over the ledge. Um, I was reading uh, um, a great tweet by a woman named Jackie Hill Perry, and she says, she was talking about how God's work, grace works through Uh, other people uh, to help us orient ourselves around him. And she said, you and I need to get some friends that make God look big, sin look bad, grace look tangible, and the gospel look true. You don't need friends that you guys automatically agree with on everything. You and I need people that will make God look really big in your life, sin look really bad in your life, grace look extremely tangible, and the gospel look really, really, really true. 
And God, sometimes his working in you is, um, is to even cause us to, to want those relationships. Listen, the entire reason we are here today in this building is because of uh, one prayer that I prayed uh, in my dorm room. I said, God, send me someone that's going to help me get closer to you. And God uh, put this woman named Veronica in my path. She shared her faith with me. And my life has uh, been radically altered just because of one woman who shared her faith with me uh, when I was a knucklehead in college. Listen, you, you have no idea what God can do through someone else in your life. And equally importantly, you have no idea what God can do in someone else's life through you. We need friends that will deeply invest in us, and uh, not just on a sur- superficial surface level, uh, people that will call us out and challenge us and b- remind us of the gospel over and over again, because this is one of the ways that God works to refine us, to make us appreciate the gift of his son more and more. Lastly, in verses 46 to 55, we see Mary actually take a hold of what she had heard. So in verse 46, she says, my soul glorifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done a great thing for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he has promised our ancestors. And finally, we see this last transition from Mary, where she is no longer fearful. Um, She's no longer uh, disturbed, but she's now, there's this excitement in what she's saying. She's starting to remember God's works and God's actions from generation to generation. And here's the craziest thing about her situation here. Uh, This really, really, really powerful um, song of praise and worship uh, that Mary is, is speaking, this is coming at the worst possible time in her life. Mary is an unwed woman who's pregnant in the ancient Middle East. And her focus And her outlook on life has now transitioned from troubled to excited. Now, there's a difference between hearing a truth and letting a truth grab hold of you. And one of the best ways you you can tell the difference between whether or not you have just heard truth and whether or not truth has grabbed hold of you is your outlook on the future right now. Here's Mary taking these words, and they're not just hitting her head, but they are penetrating deeply her heart. And I've been thinking all week, Lord, what would it take for us to take these words that we hear and these words that we sing and that they would actually hit our hearts in a, in a real way that uh, would change our lives forever, that would change our outlook on the way we're living life, that would change our outlook on the future. And uh, I think it's that it comes through the helping of God's Spirit. Uh, I don't know that you and I could uh, read a book good enough that would allow us to let truth take a hold of us in such a way. And you know what? It was never intended to be that way. In um, Romans 8.11, it says that if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring life to your mortal body. And here's what that scripture means. If you have placed your faith in Jesus and if God's spirit lives inside of you, then this is not God's one-time gift and deposit to make you independent, but rather God's spirit will be bringing life to your mortal body. That step-by-step 
Uh, every single path of the journey will be God enabling you, God giving you the power to be able to actually comprehend what he has done in your life. And um, this is why Jesus is called the author and the finisher of our faith in Hebrews 12 and 2. Jesus is not just the one that starts your faith. Jesus is the one that finishes your faith as well. You and I are just cameos in our own story. If there's going to be a way that you and I would learn to appreciate uh, the gift of God's son to us in this season, I think it means that you and I would have to go to God for help. God has never intended for you and I to live um, independent of him, but that step by step, we would be more and more increasingly dependent on God uh, to grow in him. We need Jesus to help us appreciate Jesus. This past week, uh, last Sunday, my wife had the brilliant idea that we were going to spend our Sunday afternoon putting together Ikea furniture at my brother's house. Um, My brother and sister-in-law are very happy about that. No one else is. Now, I have an aversion to Ikea furniture because um, uh, I'm no, no, no hate against Ikea. I see a lot of burning eyes, like, what you going to say about Ikea? Our whole house is from Ikea. Um, but I hate putting together the furniture because that joint is so confusing. Like, why would you put 700 pieces in a box? Why would you do that? But my wife, her brain works much different and better than mine does. Um, she can look at a sheet. She'll lay out all the pieces. And within five minutes, she will know exactly how to do it. And actually, the whole process wasn't bad at all. Um, But if it was just me and my brother trying to put it together, it would have been an absolute nightmare. And we would have probably done half of it and then just finished it uh, at a a later date. And here's what happened. Because of the enabling of a helper, of someone else, I was able to do something that I would not have been able to do on my own. The Bible calls the Holy Spirit our helper. Um, And it's not just to get you into the door of faith, but it is to progress and grow you every single step of the way. And that if you and I are going to learn what it means to center our life around God, do not let this be a journey that you're going to will yourself to, but rather to seek in desperation, God, I need help. Let's turn to him now. Uh, Heavenly Father, um, you you know us. You know our hearts, you know our ends, you know everything about us. You know the areas that we're weak. Uh, You know the areas that we pretend we're strong. Uh, God, I just pray that you would more deeply convict us and challenge us and encourage us and strengthen us and surround us with people, God, that will make us more and more appreciate the gift that you are to us. God, help us in this season center our lives around you. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.